We're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 6, starting in verse 41. John chapter 6, starting in verse 41. If you weren't, if you haven't been with us or uh, uh, if you haven't been with us as a church, we've been walking through the gospel of John and we're almost at the point in the gospel of John where we're going to take a break for the summer. We just have this week and one more week, but we talked about, we've been talking about this miracle in John 6 where Jesus uh, provides food for 5,000 people, 5,000 men and he provides this amazing miracle, and Jesus uses this miracle to demonstrate a couple of things. And so we saw that really Jesus is showing himself to be taking the people of God on a new exodus. Just like there was a, the first exodus in John 1 through 21, we see that this second, that, this, that Jesus takes his people through a new exodus in, in the New Testament. And we saw last week this this profound reality that we might call the covenant of redemption, which is that God gives us Jesus by giving us to Jesus. That the reality um, of Scripture teaches that you and I, the gift of salvation is that you and I are saved for Christ, that, that Christ purchased us at the, at the cost of his own blood. And we're going to see this week that Jesus continues his dialogue with the crowds and he continues to talk with them. And we're going to see that Jesus continues to teach us about the nature of salvation and the nature of faith and the purpose of the Christian life. So would you look with me starting in John chapter 6 verses 41 through 59. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he was from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Father in heaven, one more time, we ask that your word would be here today. Father, we pray that it would dwell in us richly. 
Father, we pray that you would cause us to abide in Christ and Christ in us. That you would make us to see all the glories that are available to us in him. Father, if we doubt, give us belief. If we grumble, give us calm. But Father, would you, if we lack, would you fill us? Would you use this word today to give us all the mercies and the glories that you have for us? It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. I want to start by asking you a question. Why are you here? Why are you here? Um, We live in what the philosopher Charles Taylor has called the secular age. And uh, there's many people today where their objection to Christianity is not so much, does, is Christianity true, but what's the point of it all? Uh, Many, many Christians, and many of us know Christians like this, live as functional deists, where our lives do not betray that we actually believe in God. And many of my unbelieving friends are willing to grant that there's some good reasons to believe in Christianity, that there's some good reasons to assent to the truths taught in the Bible, and yet the importance of the Christian faith that the engaging with Christ on a daily life, that they fail to see what difference it makes. What's the importance of it? What's the purpose of it? What's the goal and the, the aim of the Christian life? And for many of us, maybe we struggle to articulate that. Why are we here? Why do we believe? Why do we even bother having faith? Many, some of, many, maybe some of you are here today and you think, I am here because I really want to kick a sin habit. Or maybe I'm here because I want to go to heaven when I die. Or maybe I'm here for some other reason. Why are you here this morning? Why, why bother with faith? What is the good of faith? What is the goal of faith? What does faith give us? So this morning I want to talk about this from using two questions. First I want to ask, what is faith? What does this passage teach us about what the nature of faith is? And the second question I want to ask is, why bother with faith? If, if this is what faith is, what is the goal, what's the aim, what's the purpose of it? What, what, what is faith and why, why bother with faith? Well, very clearly in this first part we see that faith is, faith is eating. Faith is eating. Faith, the picture that God gives us of faith in this passage is of eating. And so I want to walk through this first paragraph. So we start off in verse 41, and, and, and the Jews are are grumbling about Jesus. Now, I want to point out, if Jesus is casting what he has done as the new exodus, um, then, then just like the Jews grumbled in the wilderness in the first exodus, now the Jews are grumbling now. I didn't come up with that. That was somebody else's. But it is true that there is this kind of inherent grumbling because Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And so here's their objection in verse 42. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, how can he now say, I have come down from heaven? So here's the question that they're asking. They're saying, if if we know that Jesus is human, we watched him growing up, we know his parents, how can he claim that his origin is from above? Now, Jesus responds in verse 43. He says, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. Now, I just want to point this out just so we understand. What does he mean by grumbling? Is the problem that these people have a legitimate question, a legitimate doubt? I don't think so. 
See, grumbling, at least what Jesus is pointing out here, the problem of grumbling is that we ask questions to justify our unbelief without waiting to hear the answer that Scripture has for us. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you have objections to the Christian faith, and maybe because of those objections you are uh, allowing yourself to, to engage in all kinds of inconsistencies, and you are not waiting to hear the answer that God has for you this morning. And Jesus would just say to you, do not grumble. Do not grumble. Now Jesus goes on to explain exactly what he means and why he's saying what he's saying. So he says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now a couple things about this passage, about this verse here. First, Jesus is just restating what he's already said in the previous week. So in the previous week, he has already said that those who are Christ have been given by the Father to the Son from eternity past. That for those who are Christians, they have been given to the Son. And so Jesus is just summarizing what he's already said at the beginning of 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word for draw is not the same word that we maybe think of when we think of coming to Christ. Maybe we think of when we think of coming to Christ as I was really persuaded or convinced or I went. This word for draw is the same word that you would use to describe pulling a fish out of the water or putting a fish in a net and dragging it out of the water. The fish is fighting with all of its might to get away from the net and yet they're still drawn up into the boat. So Christians, oftentimes when we come to Christ, we are fighting with all of our might. And yet God, in His kindness and in His mercy, draws us to Himself. Ephesians says, When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, He made us alive together in Christ. Dead things don't hear. Dead things aren't persuaded. But God, in His kindness, makes them alive. So no fish gets into a net on purpose. And yet God, in His kindness, pulls them into the boat. and says, no one will come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And yet that describes the beginning of the Christian faith, and it also leads to the end of the Christian faith, where he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. That to be converted leads to resurrection. That to be begin your faith means to end your faith. Uh, that what we see here in verse 44 is that salvation, the nature of salvation, we saw this last week, is indivisible. Jesus is not a buffet table. You cannot come to him and say, I want the beginning but not the end. I want justification but not sanctification. I want conversion but not conviction. I want pardon but not purity. If you come to Christ, you get all of him. And praise God because it's all good. And it's, but the nature of salvation is indivisible, and God is sovereign and working over every single inch of it. This is why it says in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you, so God begins a good work, will bring it to completion. Not might bring it to completion, not may bring it to completion, not wants to bring it, but he will bring it to completion. Salvation, the nature of salvation is indivisible. It can't be cut up. Now, Jesus goes on to justify exactly what he has already said. 
And notice this, that the same God who inspired the Holy Scriptures, the same God who created the very people who are arguing with him, justifies his argument using Scripture. So it says in verse 45, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. That is, of course, a quotation from Isaiah 54 we just saw a minute ago. And yet the same thing is referred to in the passages regarding the New Covenant in Ezekiel 36 and and Jeremiah 31. That even in the Old Testament, there was this reality, this teaching, that God himself would have to be the one to make us learn. That God himself would have to be the one who would teach us about himself. That we, we, we can't go up there and get it ourselves, but rather he must come down and get us for himself. He must draw us. Now, the only, the only new thing that Jesus is saying that he refers to here is, that, is how God does that. How does God draw us to himself? It's through his Son. This is why it says in verse 46, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And of course, we've already seen this as we've walked through the Gospel of John. In John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So how does the Father draw us to Himself? How does the Father bring us to Himself? It's through the Son. How does the Father teach us about the Son? Through the Son. The Father brings us to salvation through the Son. And then He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So, How does he give us salvation? How does he teach us about himself? How does he reveal the knowledge that will lead to salvation? It's through faith alone. He doesn't say, truly, truly, whoever believes and is good enough. Or truly, truly, whoever believes and has lived a good life. Or truly, truly, whoever believes or is good enough. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ to understand and to know and to believe in him is the way to be saved. And all of this he has already said in the, in the passages leading up to this. None of what we are seeing right now is, is new information. And Jesus goes on to describe what faith is, what does it mean to put our faith in Christ as eating. And so we see in the passage that follows that Jesus uses the analogy of eating to describe what faith is. Faith provides an illustration for what it means, uh, or eating provides an illustration of what it means to have faith. So if you're wondering, what does it mean to have faith? Does it mean that I just switch a, uh, uh, flip a switch? No, to, to have faith means to eat. In other words, to be nourished, to partake of repeatedly again and again. This is why Jesus says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Now, Jesus, as we've already seen, is drawing all these connections between what he is doing in this new Exodus and what Moses did in the old Exodus. And so he's going to point back to the old Exodus. And notice how he kind of has a slight jab here because they referred to his parents and now he refers to their parents. It says, your fathers, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, referring to himself, so that one may eat of it, a.k.a. believe in it, a.k.a. know it, and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats, a.k.a. believes, a.k.a. is taught by God, a.k.a. is drawn by God, a.k.a. has faith in God, if anyone eats of this bread, in other words, myself, the living bread, the bread of life, the living water, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So how, what is faith? Faith is like eating what what do we eat? Well, we eat the good news of the gospel. Uh, the second half, verse 51, is very clear allusion to the crucifixion, where Christ will die up for, for our sins on, on the cross, where Christ will be crucified for you and for me, where he'll pay our penalty. And the analogy of eating means it's something that we come back to again and again, and we're nourished by, that we're, that we're nurtured by, that, we, that, that feeds us and sustains us. In other words, the gospel is not the beginning of the Christian life. It's not like you believe in Christ once, and then you're good. It's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. The gospel is the bread of life. And we come to it, and we eat of it again. And again, and it sustains us, and it nourishes us, and it keeps us, and it enlivens us and quickens us. What does it mean to have faith? What it means to have faith is it means to eat the bread of life, to receive the bread of life, to believe in the bread of life. Maybe you say, well, what good is that? What difference? Of course, it means that I go to heaven when I die, but I mean, I got a full day on Tuesday. I got, I got to wake up early in the morning. I got to get my coffee. I got to spill my coffee. I got to make another cup of coffee. I got to go to work. I got to come home, drive home in the traffic, especially if you're going on 1A here. I got to make dinner, get up and do it. What, what good... What's the benefit? What's the purpose? What's the goal of eating this bread, of feeding on this bread, of being sustained by this bread? We'll see this in the second half of this passage. The, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Notice again how they're doing the same thing. They're asking a question to justify unbelief without waiting for the answer to the question that they're asking. They're using a question to justify unbelief without waiting for an answer to, ju- to, for, to that question. And Jesus very patiently says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, this is more evocative language, but Jesus is just repeating what he's already said. He's saying, the one who has faith in me, the one who believes in me, the one who trusts me, who comes to me, who's drawn by the Father to me, that's the one who will live forever. And in verse 53, he asserts this negatively. He says, if you don't do this, If you don't believe me, if you don't trust me, if you don't have faith in me, if you're not taught by God, then you have no life in you. On the other hand, he says, the one who feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is saying, the one who believes in me and trusts me, I will indeed give 
eternal life. And then he says in verse 55, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Jesus is again asserting what he's already said. This is information that he's already provided them. But it's worth pointing out how absolutely offensive this would have been to a first century Jew. It's worth pointing out how very offensive this would have been to a first century Jew. If you are wondering, is cannibalism kosher? The answer is no. This is not something which a first century Jewish person who follows the rules and the regulations of of a first century Jew who follows the rules and the regulations of Torah would have found a, an appealing image. And Jesus here is, is using this image for good reason, and yet he know, it's not like he doesn't know that this is going to be offensive. This is a, as we'll see next week, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And Jesus is again providing an analogy. It's much like the parables in the, in the synoptic gospels that Jesus uses to discern or to help, to help sift out those who don't have true faith. Because it takes some thinking to come to what exactly is Jesus trying to say here? What exactly is he trying to imply here? And Jesus is here trying to sift through this. The, the response next week that we'll see where many disciples leave him and depart after this teaching is exactly what Jesus is going for. But for those who will hear, and for those who will believe, and that for those who will receive, life itself, eternity itself, is being put on the table. Which is why he says this next in verse 56. Because in verse 56, Jesus gives us the whole purpose, the the highest goal, the highest aim, the most blessed thing, what it means to have faith. It says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, again, that's the language of faith, abides present tense in me and I in him. Now, to help us understand this, We've already seen in verse 51 this language of atonement. That Jesus dies on the cross for our sins in our place. The, the, the death that Jesus has died purchases for us a, an eternal destiny. And, and we've seen in this language the language of participation or what we might call union with Christ. Which means that when we put our faith in Christ, that we have this union with him, that our destiny, our fate, our lives are linked to his. So because he died, we die. Because he's risen, we're risen. Because he ascended, we're ascended. That we have this positional fact of union with Christ. It's the very same language that Paul will use in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus says uh, in these passages, he's 
he is uh, indicating not only this, this truth that uh, our, our salvation has been purchased for us, but rather that we really do share in Christ. And because he was risen, our fate is that we will be risen and that we will be united with him in, in eternity. And all of that is true. And yet here in verse 56, Jesus takes it to the next level. Because Jesus goes beyond the language of union with Christ. He goes into the language of what we might call, just to make a distinction between this, communion with Christ. If union with Christ is the objective reality that we, our fate is wrapped up in Christ, communion with Christ is the living, ongoing, daily intimacy that we share with Christ. If I could put it this way, the good news of union with Christ is that all the blessings of the gospel are given to you. The good news of communion with Christ is that you can experience those blessings. Christian, the, the greatest aim, the purpose, the greatest gift that God gives you in the gospel is not only that you go to a great place when you die, It's not only that you have the surety of eternal life, which you do if you have faith in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that you can enjoy and experience that eternal life now. You don't have to wait to eternity to have eternity. You don't have to wait till you get to Jesus to experience life with Christ. You can have him abide in you and I in him. Do you understand this? If eating is faith, we might say this, eating is for abiding. Eating is for abiding, to have Christ abide in me and to abide in him. Eating is for abiding. Jesus will return to this language of abiding in Christ later in John 15. When he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The goal, the purpose, the importance of Christian faith is that you can abide in Christ and have Christ abide in you that you can have daily intimacy with him, that you can walk with him, that you can live with him, that you can be sustained by him, that it's not merely an objective reality. It's this place where the objective and the subjective merge, where temporal life and eternal life come together. That to have Christ abiding in you is to know in your bones the truth of Christianity. Uh, Jesus goes on to explain it this way in verse 57. 
It says, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, aka whoever has faith in me or believes in me, he also will live because of me. Jesus says, this communion that I have with the Father, this, this intimacy that I have with him, you can have the same kind of intimacy with me. This is, of course, something that Jesus will later say in John 17, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that God himself has given himself to his own people, that not only as something that gives them certainty for after they die, but that they can experience and enjoy and celebrate that now. The, the goal of the Christian faith, the reason, the, the importance of it, is not only that you have an eternal destiny, but it's so that you and I might walk with him. It's not even, and this might sound counterintuitive, it's not even so that you might stop sinning. Do you understand that? That Your sin gets in the way of your communion. Your communion with Christ is a bigger goal, a more important goal, a more life-giving goal than even that. To, To know Christ and have Him abiding in you and to abide in Him, to be grafted into Him, that's the stuff of glory. That's the goal of glory. And that's what is on offer for you today. Jesus goes on to explain this in verse 58. So this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, whoever believes in this bread, whoever receives this bread, whoever is drawn to this bread, whoever, whoever comes and is sustained and nourished, that, to that one has eternal life. And of course, maybe you ask this morning, well, how, how do we abide in Christ? How does Christ abide in us? If, this, if, if God has given me this, this wonderful reality that I can experience intimacy with Christ and live with Him and walk with Him, how do I get that? Well, it actually tells us in the next verse, in verse 59. So Jesus said these things in the synagogue as He taught. Notice how the same word is up above when Jesus is quoting Isaiah 54, referring to the new covenant, as he taught at Capernaum. How do you have Christ abiding in you? How do you abide with Christ? How does Christ live in you and you live with Christ? Well, you walk with his word. I mean, after, after all, in the next section, it says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And even Peter gets this. If you're reading your Bible and Peter understands something, that's how you know it's true. Simon Peter answered him. John 6, 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So what is the goal of the Christian faith? It's to abide in Christ. How do we do that? It's by receiving and believing and understanding and to walk with his word. To let his word dwell in us richly. To, to know his Bible. Do you, do you understand this? That in every point of our worship service this morning, 
the call to worship this morning, the songs that we've sung, the prayers that we've made, the word that you're hearing right now, the scriptures that have been read, God himself is offering to you through his word, abide in me and I in you. There is no greater goal. There is no greater purpose. There is nothing greater that God can give you than his son. And his son is available to you in his word this morning. I think that this truth, this glory, ought to change the way that we live for a number of reasons. First, I hope you know that it's true that God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him. Maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, with all the things that I've done, with all the doubts that I've, like, would God still want me to know him? Would God still want, yes, he would. That's why he teaches us himself. He goes to great pains that you and I might know him, that we might receive his witness. God wants you to know him. To which I would also add this, don't grumble. Don't grumble. It says it very clearly in this passage where Jesus says, do not grumble amongst yourselves. Don't grumble. Don't use doubts and questions to justify unbelief without waiting to hear the answer to those questions. If you have questions, that's great. But don't use your questions to justify unbelief when there are answers to your questions. They're right here. The Psalms say it this way. In Psalm 95, Psalm 95 says this. Verses 7 through 9. It says, Today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Don't grumble. This is not a a church where you ought to feel afraid to voice legitimate questions and legitimate doubts. I would love, I know members here would love nothing more than to talk with you about those things. But this ought to be a church where we don't grumble against the word of God. Where when we have those doubts and we have those questions, we ask them honestly and we wait to hear the answer. Not where we use that as an occasion to justify unbelief. Don't grumble. I'd also add this. The call, the offer of salvation is as free today as it has ever been. If you are here this morning and you have never put your faith in Christ, you've never looked to him, you've never believed in him, you've never received him, but you feel God drawing you now, Come to Christ. Stop fighting against the net. Stop kicking against the goad. Come to Christ. Eat the bread of life. Receive salvation today. Don't wait for tomorrow. You are not promised tomorrow. 
any point, I could have to go to the hospital to visit you or those who love you grieving. Do not wait for tomorrow. Come to Christ today. Believe in him today. Eternity is offered for you on the table today. Why would you wait another minute? To which I would also add this. If what we have said this morning is true, that God is sovereign over all, and that God draws those who are his to himself, we ought to be the humblest people there are. Because the only thing that we've contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary in the first place. Even this morning, I was reading in 2 Kings, and if you've ever spent time reading 1 and 2 Kings, you know that the the northern kingdom, the the kingdom of Israel after the kingdom split, uh, they all wander off into idolatry and all kinds of pagan nonsense, and God carts them off. And there are some of the kings in the southern kingdom who do the same thing. But the far more incipient, the far more subtle sin of the kingdom of Judah is pride. It's like Uzziah who stretches out his hand to make the offering that's not his and he gets struck with leprosy. It's like Josiah who can't, who has just seen this remarkable work of the Spirit of God to reform the people of God through the Word of God, and yet he can't let somebody else go by his kingdom without showing them what's up. If you want to see the downfall of the people of God, it is not only obvious, blatant, external idolatry, it is also subtle, internal, careful, drifting by degrees into pride. And yet, what we have seen in our passage this morning is that God saves. That God is the one who brings salvation. And this ought to make us humble. This ought to make us humble. I would also say this. Each one of us should set it in our mind that the goal the purpose, the telos, the aim of the Christian life is above all, certainly not the only, but the highest, the ultimate goal of the Christian life is to abide in Christ and to have Christ abide in us. It's to have this union with Christ, to experience communion with Christ. That might seem counterintuitive, Because if you're like me, maybe you grew up in a a church context that taught that the, the ultimate goal of the Christian life is to stop doing X. So if I could just stop swearing, or if I could stop going and looking at sites I know I'm not supposed to, or if I could just get my anger under control, or if I could just honor my parents more, or if I could just do whatever, then that's what I'm really working for. But God has given you a higher, a more life-giving goal for the Christian walk. It's to abide in Christ and to have Christ abide in you. It's to walk with him, to know him. The highest goal of the Christian life is to be in Christ. It's to have Christ. And that is something that he gives you on the very first day that you're saved And it's something that he gives you more and more by degree. 
I would add to this that to abide in Christ and to have union with Christ is both the means and the end of kicking sin in our lives. So if you're struggling with a habitual sin, if you are wondering, how can I ever get over this? Abide in Christ. And if you're wondering, why should I struggle, get over this sin? Why should I kick this sin? The answer is simple. So you can abide in Christ. The more that you grow in your walk with Christ, the more holy that you grow, the more that you can abide in Christ. And the only way, the only way you will kick those sins in your life is by abiding in Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says this way, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if our sins are getting in the way of us abiding in Christ, the only way to get back to that point is to confess those things, to bring them before the cross, to nail them to the cross, and to experience new life and forgiveness. And I would just encourage you, if you feel like you are going through a spiritual dry season, and you feel that your heart is callous, and you feel yourself growing dull to the word of the Lord. It's worth time taking the time to get alone with God and write out all the things that you think you need to confess to him. Now, that might not be the only reason that you feel a season of spiritual dryness, but I would just encourage you, more often than not, the times where my heart is hard to the things of the Lord, the times where my heart just doesn't respond, doesn't leap like it ought to, is because there are things in my heart that I'm harboring. And the only way to actually abide in Christ is to set those sins aside. This is what it says in Hebrews 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And maybe you're here, you're saying, well, I've done that, I've I've confessed those sins, but I would really like to not do them again. How do I change? How do I get myself to the place where I've grown and I've matured so that I can abide in Christ more? The answer is, abide in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now it would be great if we could just leapfrog the whole process and be transformed all in an instant. But God in his kindness and in his wisdom says, no, one degree of glory at a time, one sin at a time, one confession at a time, one step at a time, one centimeter at a time, and then two centimeters back, and then three more forward. One degree of glory at a time. Yesterday I was running up this hill uh, because I want to try a new running route. Big mistake. Do not do that. It's 
uphill for a long ways. Anyways, I was running uphill and I was on the, I was on the way back and I was, I was trying to get, and I, I was feel, I could feel my body shutting down and I, I looked at the telephone pole and it's so far ahead. I thought, okay, I can't make it to the next telephone pole. I'm just going to make it to the tree that's in the middle. And so one half telephone pole of distance at a time, I got up that mountain and sanctification is the same way. I can't make it. I can't, I can't stop blowing up when that thing happens. But I can curb my anger just a little bit more. And by looking at Christ, and I don't know if I can read my Bible every day for the next year, but I can do it for the next week. Just one degree of glory to the next. And that's all that God is asking of us right now. That's all that God is offering to us right now. He says, today... As long as it just abide in Christ today. And tomorrow, you get up and you do the same thing. Abide in Christ today. But lest you misunderstand what I'm talking about, I think I need, just need to say this clearly. We all need to make conscious effort to abide in Christ. This is not a, a let go and let God understanding of Scripture. This is something that you and I must put effort into and work at abiding in Christ. Colossians 3 says it this way, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. How do we dwell in Christ? Well, through his word and among his people and listening to the preaching of his word and singing good songs and praying to the Lord, abiding in Christ today, one degree of glory at a time, one sin to confess at a time, one sin to be cleansed at a time. And we all with unveiled faces will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Which is why I would say this is my final application. If you're here and you feel the walls are closing in on you, you feel like it's a storm, you feel like you're so far down in the valley you can't even see over the sides of the valley, and you're wondering, what good does all this do for me in that season? Let me just encourage you. It's in those times where the world seems the darkest, where the gospel shines the brightest. It's in those times where nothing else makes sense, where the power and the peculiar nature of the gospel is the sweetest. And so if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I, don't, I just don't know how I can do it, just abide in Christ today. And abide with Christ all the way to glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your Son so that we might know him, so we might abide in him, not only so we might have the things that he gives us, so that we might be found in him. so that we not only would not have a righteousness not of our own, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. 
but so that we might also continue to work with him, not against him. To continue to abide in him and make effort to walk with him. One day at a time, one step at a time, one degree at a time, all the way to glory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.